Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to be there in just a second. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, we, have, we have spent the last three weeks going over uh, just the idea of morality as a whole, how we think about right and wrong uh, as human beings. So we've tried to lay a little bit of a foundation uh, by asking the question, what are the determining factors at play in how we think about morality? So we've been trying to, to think about all of that, what things influence the way we think about morality those, and, and those who are responsible for determining morality. And we talked about how all of that might actually impact, and not just might, does impact the way that we approach an ancient set of commandments, commandments I'm sorry, like the Ten Commandments that we see in the Old Testament. Um, so I would highly recommend, if you have not listened to those, to go back at some point and uh, just grab the podcast or something to, to catch up on those three weeks, because they are uh, very foundational for the rest of the series as we go through the Ten Commandments one at a time. Um, we will also reference back to those weeks as we go throughout the series, so it may be kind of confusing if you haven't listened to them. Um, so I would highly recommend it. Uh, today, we are finally going to get into what we are, are talking about in the series as a whole. So we're finally getting into the commandments themselves. So I mentioned this last week, uh, but just as a historical recap, the commandments are first found in Exodus as the, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, and then reiterated in Deuteronomy. So we are actually going to be reading uh, from Deuteronomy today as we look at the first commandment. So Deuteronomy 5, like I said, we're going to be reading verse 6 and 7. So these are God's words, starting in verse 6. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, so first, I think the most important thing to, to recognize is this command starts with a reminder of who God is and what God has done. So we talked briefly about this last week, uh, but when God initially gave the Ten Commandments to his people, the nation of Israel in Exodus, it was fewer than two months uh, after freeing them from Egypt, from, from slavery, where they, where they had been enslaved for about 400 years. So it was fresh on their minds. Um, very fresh out of a nation uh, with a very solidified culture. Egypt was very established at the time. So they had, uh, they had a very, very solid culture. Israel uh, did not really have a culture of their own at this point. They did not really have their own norms, their own way of life. They had been heavily influenced by, by default because they were in Egypt for 400 years. And, and they had become basically an indistinguishable part of Egypt in the way that they conducted themselves, the, the, the Egyptian culture that they were a part of, which means that part of God bringing them out of Egypt at this time was also God calling them to leave behind many of the old ways of life that they had grown accustomed to. So God was trying to reestablish for them that he was their people. With their, and, and they had their own culture and, and part of that. And particularly, he was trying to reestablish their perception of what was right and wrong. 
this question of morality. And at the center of all of this was, was that God wanted the Israelites to recognize him as the one true God, that he wanted them not to worship all of the other various gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Um, in fact, if you are familiar with the story of Exodus, uh, you will know that there was a series of plagues. I mentioned it last week briefly. A series of plagues that God sent on Egypt when, when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. Um, what you may not know, and maybe you do, but uh, I find this incredibly interesting. Each one of those plagues was actually a very specific uh, targeted act for God to demonstrate how much more powerful he was than, than the Egyptian gods, than the various Egyptian gods. So uh, just to rattle off a few, the Egyptians had a god named Osiris, and Osiris was thought to be the god of the Nile River. The belief was that the Nile River was the, the bloodstream of Osiris. And so in one of the plagues, God showed his power over Osiris by turning the entire Nile River into literal blood, is what we see in, in Exodus. Uh, so in uh, there's another Egyptian god named Heket, the goddess of fertility. So she was usually depicted uh, as having the head of a frog and all the imagery that, that we can see. And because of this, Egyptians actually viewed frogs as sacred at the time. They would never kill a frog. Uh, there were laws against it in ancient Egyptian society, in fact. But in one of the plagues, God sends so many frogs on Egypt that you can't even take a step without stepping on frogs everywhere. So God sends frogs to cover all of the, all of the land that, that the Egyptians have, just to show his power over that god. There was another Egyptian goddess named Hathor, and she was the goddess of protection. And often depicted in, in what we can see in historical, with historical information, depicted with the head of a cow. This was how she was seen. So in another plague, God sends a disease on all cows and livestock in Egypt, wiping them all out, killing them all which had massive ripple effects, uh, both because that's shocking, but also economically, that's, that's a massive blow. Um, Egyptians worshiped Ra, the sun god. And in, in another plague, God shows his power over Ra by making complete darkness in the middle of the day. Uh, three days, actually, of complete darkness. And, and I don't have to list them all right now, but every single one of the 10 plagues that God sent on Egypt was a way of God asserting his supremacy and his authority and his power over all of these Egyptian gods, which actually were not gods at all, which is part of the, the purpose of what the God of Israel was doing. So he's showing that going to these other false gods with, with anything, going to them for protection or provision, all of those things is completely futile. It's pointless. That's what, he, that's what he's showing. He, he's basically just flexing all, on all these false gods one by one, he could have sent all 10 plagues at once, but he didn't. He went one at a time and, and systematically went through it so that everyone could see before their eyes that God was more powerful than all of these. So God was saying, I am the one true power, I am the only true God, and all the other gods out there are just a sham. And I can prove it to you any day that I want. And so here, in the first commandment that we see, uh, he makes that whole idea into a command. So he tells the Israelites that they should have no other gods before him. And he, and he prefaces that, like we said in verse 6, uh, by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And, and that is the premise, that idea in verse 6 is the premise for all the commands that are about to follow. 
It's the premise of who God is, but especially for this first command, which is having no other gods before him. He says, because of who I am and what I have done, I have shown you that, that you should have no other gods before me. I have proven that to you. Um, so when I, when I was younger, I, I briefly mentioned some of these things last week, if you were here. Uh, I used to absolutely hate uh, people saying things, like people in authority saying things like, because I said so. I hated it. I'm not saying that they were wrong for saying it. I'm saying I hated it. Uh, especially, like you, in the response to, here's what you should do. Why? Because I said so. And it just, ugh, it ate me up inside. I hated hearing that so much. It just felt like a cop-out to me of like, you, you just don't, either you don't have a reason or you don't understand the reason yourself is, is what I thought anytime I would hear that. It did not sound like a very sophisticated or clear answer. Uh, in fact, it just made me more confident that it was a stupid rule. That's basically what I, what I felt. So I told myself when I was younger, oh, when I grow up I'm, and I'm a parent, I'm never going to say that. Or if I'm put in a position of authority, I'm never going to say because I said so as a reason for something. Never. Um, and so before here, uh, I mentioned this last week, I was a, I was a child care site director uh, and I had 120 K through fifth graders in my charge. Um, and let me tell you how unbelievably easy it is to say because I said so. Right? And, and now that I'm a parent, uh, Jude can't ask me questions yet, but, but I know for a fact it is going to be so hard for me not to say that once he starts questioning me in ways that I feel like are absolutely ridiculous. But, but here's the thing. Um, I, I have a perspective now that I did not have as a kid. Now that I am a parent or an, an adult in general, I, I feel like I have a new understanding, specifically as a parent, I have a new understanding of for what it means to be a parent. So I now tangibly understand the reality that I would do absolutely anything in my power to protect and care for my son. I am also abundantly aware that I am unbelievably smarter than he is, right? That might change one day, but right now, is no comparison, no contest at all, right? Just this morning, he sped up and rubbed his face in it. And it's like, that looked like it was on purpose. That was so dumb. Um, and he does it all the time. I haven't done that in years. <laughs> so when, when I heard people say that when I was younger, uh, when I heard people say, because I said so, or because I'm your parent, when I was younger, I didn't understand it, but now that I, I look back, I think what, what they actually meant when they were saying it was, hey, I, I'm your parent. I have given more of my life, my energy, my resources, my sleep, my blood, sweat, tears, all of this to help you. I have given more than any other human on this planet to do that for you. Your, your mother and I, in fact, are the sole reason that you are alive, despite your best efforts. I know so much more about you than you could possibly know about you. I know so much more about the world right now than you could possibly know and understand. And because of all of that, and because of who I am and what I have done for you, the fact that I'm asking you to do something is a great reason for you to listen to me. Right? And I, I get that not everyone has, has great parents. Not everyone even has good parents. I, I understand that, but the logic still stands, that it makes sense logically. And, and this, I would argue, is, is just a really small version, a small picture of what God is saying to Israel in verse 6. 
God is saying, hey, as a reminder, here is who I am, and here is what I have done for you. Now, in light of that, you should have no other gods before me. And to be honest, the fact that it's me saying this to you, the God who brought you out of Egypt and saved you, that's a great reason for you to listen. Uh, So right here, I want to briefly recap something I mentioned last week uh, because I think it is so, so important for us to remember with all of these commandments. In in the Christian life and in the Christian walk, which is the story of Exodus is kind of like a prototype of, uh, in in some way, uh, salvation always precedes obedience. Salvation always precedes obedience. God does not say, I want you to obey me so that you can earn my acceptance or so that you can earn my salvation. He, he doesn't say that. He saves his people first. And then he calls them to obey in response. And that is so important for us to get because if you get the order reversed on that, you, you actually ventured into an entirely different religion completely. You're no longer talking about Christianity at all. You're no longer talking about what we see in Scripture. And and here in this passage, it's no different. God is saying, I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, in light of that, here's how I want you to live. And so in this case, the command is, have no other gods before him. Now, if you can remember back two weeks ago, so not last week, but the previous week, we unpacked five different categories of morality. Um, And if you haven't listened to it, I don't have time to explain it all, but go back and listen. It's very helpful. There's five different categories of morality. And so this command, this have no other gods before me, is a command that assumes the authority and loyalty moral categories that we talked about. Authority and loyalty. This is a call to ultimate trust and ultimate loyalty and fidelity to the God of the Bible. So when you, when you hear this first command, it might sound like God say, is saying, hey, no, no polytheism, right? Don't, don't have other gods, or if you do, just make sure they're, they're way less than me, right? Don't, don't pair me with all the other stuff that you've got going on in your life. Just make sure I'm the most important one. That's, that's the real goal. But, but that is not what he is saying. He is not saying that. When God says you should have no other gods before me, the phrase before me that is in in Scripture could actually be translated in my presence or in in my face is kind of how it's set up with the word first, right? So what God is actually saying is that no God, no person, nothing in this world comes before me in your life. In fact, nothing else is worthy of your time, attention, effort, and worship at all like I am. In my presence, none of that is worth anything. That's the heart behind the first commandment. And, and to help us with this, with this idea, I want us to look at an, another passage in the Bible that uh, actually gives us a really helpful metaphor for, for how this concept works. So we'll put this on the screen for you. Uh, this is from Jeremiah 2. So in context, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. It says this, has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they are not gods at all? But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So so here God is employing a metaphor to try to communicate just how absurd the choice is to have other gods or other things before him. 
And to do that, he, he uses the metaphor of water. And so in the ancient world, there are two primary ways of obtaining good, clean drinking water, or just drinking water in general. One is that you could live by a river or a spring, water that is flowing. That, that was referred to uh, as living water, moving water. Just colloquially, it was called that. And that's what Jeremiah is referring to here. This is living water as a, as a spring. It's, it's moving. It's constantly fresh. It's constantly renewing. And, and that's the best way to make sure you have water to drink. You don't have to do anything other than show up at the spring. But most people did not have the luxury of living next to a spring or river. They didn't have the luxury of always being close to a source of living water. Instead, they had to use something called a cistern, uh, which is essentially just a big bucket or a big bowl or sometimes uh, a hole in the ground of some kind that you would, that you would have to try to collect rainwater. Uh, so just think real quick about the last time that you left something outside uh, when it rained and it ended up collecting a bunch of rainwater. Um, would you describe your response when you walk outside to be like, oh my gosh, look at that delicious fresh water. I would love to drink that. Um, probably not. <laughs> if that was all you had, maybe. But I don't think that you would describe that as water that you would prefer to drink. Water in a, in a cistern. This is a, a much worse way to get drinking water because it, it would get stagnant over time. It's, it's whatever was in the thing before it filled up with water is now all in the water. It's, it's just gross. It's not nearly as good as fresh water. So using these two images that everyone would have been very familiar with, God, God says that worshiping other gods is sort of like if you only had the, or if you had the ability to collect fresh, good spring water, it's right next to your house. You've got a flowing spring. And he says, you, you look at that, and instead you decide to go get a, a cistern for yourself to collect stagnant water. And in fact, it's a broken cistern to begin with. It's full of cracks, and it can't even hold the water in the first place. In other words, this is a nonsensical decision, right? What a bizarre thought process if you were, if you were faced with that situation. And he, and he says, specifically, like I said, that's not even a good cistern. Like, your bad idea is a, is a bad cistern. Like, you, you went even further. And that's what he is saying it's like when we turn to something other than God to satisfy our spiritual thirst, our spiritual desire. So here, God is using thirst as a metaphor, again, for, for something like our inner emptiness, this hole inside of us. So all of us are born with, with a sort of inner emptiness, we'll call it, a sense of feeling incomplete, a sense of feeling unsatisfied or discontent in some way. And the scriptures teach us that we are born that way because we are, we are born alienated from a relationship with the true and living God. And we're told we will all go to someone or something to try to fill that hole, to try to quench that thirst. We all go to something to try to fill that emptiness that is inside all of us. And everyone builds their life on something. Everybody does. And ultimately, as Jeremiah says, there are only two options. You can either pick God that will satisfy that thirst, or you can pick something else. And, and whatever that something else is will functionally become a God to you. And you may not call it that, but that is essentially what's happening. That's what that is in your life. And, and what's interesting is, is the authors of Scripture are not the only people that make this observation. So there's a professor and, and late novelist, his name was David Foster Wallace, who's not a follower of Jesus. Um, he famously put it this way in a commencement speech that he gave. He said, 
in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Do you, do you see what he's saying here? He, he's, he's only listed out three or four examples, which is not that many, but he's, he's pointing out the very thing that Scripture actually teaches us over and over again. All of us have functional gods in our life. All of us. Things that we seek out to try to find meaning and purpose and joy and contentment in life. That we all seek those things. He also says in the same speech that a great reason to worship, in his words, he says a great reason to worship God or Allah or some other spiritual type thing, remember, not a Christian, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. What, what he means here is that other gods we worship will eventually run our lives completely. They will be in charge of our lives. They will drag us along, they will wear us out, They will exhaust us and they will burn us out because they are broken cisterns. They could never actually satisfy. And this is why uh, the African church father, St. Augustine, uh, he famously said it like this. He said, God, our hearts will not rest until they rest in you. Our hearts will not rest until they rest in you. We were made to worship God and, and simply nothing else will do. Nothing else. So God says, have no other gods before me. Now, practically, I think, I think there's a reason that this command is given first. Very first in the list. I, I think that it's very strategic. So the reformer, Martin Luther, way back in the day, he had a, a fascinating observation about the first commandment. He said, essentially, if you don't break the first commandment, you won't break any of the others. And if you do break one of the others, you've already broken the first one. Somewhere along the line, you have already broken the first commandment. Let me me show you, uh, try to show you what he means. So if you lie, for example, why are you lying? Why do we lie? Well, most likely, it's because in the moment, something has become more important to you than telling the truth. Some, some success that you can obtain, something that you can have by lying, some approval in the eyes of your peers, some outcome that you could secure for yourself or you feel like you could secure for yourself if you lie, some comfort you can maintain, something in that moment has begun to matter more to you than the approval of God. So you lie. Why do you steal? Well, because in the moment... I'm not, I'm not resting in God's provision. I'm not trusting God's provision for me. We have forsaken the fountain of living water, and we, we have turned to a broken cistern. So, so this means, and this is, this is so important for us that we realize about ourselves, 
all of our behaviors and all, all of our sinful tendencies are, are actually symptoms. They are symptoms because if you have a genuine delight in God and you enjoy him as the living water that he is, then the resulting behaviors will be things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the spirit. We see it in scripture. But if, if you have a failure to enjoy God, if God is not the source of living water that you go to, it, it results in behaviors like anger and, and worry and, and selfishness and lust and self-righteousness and pride and rebellion and drunkenness and greed and envy and all the things that Scripture tells us. But in order to get anywhere, whether, whether that's embodying the healthy behaviors that, that we see in Scripture or remedying the negative behaviors that we see, you have to realize that they are all just symptoms. They are not the problem in and of themselves. They are symptoms of either accepting God as the, as the fountain of living water or for forsaking God and chasing after broken cisterns. So anytime we sin, anytime something else has gone wrong before we end up in that place, something else has been functioning as God in our lives. And once we realize that, we actually have an avenue to dealing with it. All, all of that is the heart and the substance of this first commandment. And almost always throughout all of human history, this has coincided with the worship of alternative or false gods, actual, actual things that people have called deities. And that probably seems like odd language to us because we don't tend to think about it in those terms most often in, in modern-day America. We don't think about uh, worshiping gods, but in most of human history, and still in a lot of places in our world, worship of various gods has been very commonplace. We already talked about how it was the case in ancient Egypt and the various gods that they worshiped, and it was also true in Jesus' time when he, was, when he was here with his people in the first century Greek and Roman societies that he existed in. So in those societies, people worshiped Plutus, for example, who was the god of prosperity and the god of money. If you wanted prosperity and money and abundance, if you wanted these things, you would go to the temple of Plutus and you would make offerings in the hopes that he would deliver those things into your life. They worshipped Athena, the goddess of wisdom and politics. They had Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality and beauty. They had Nike, who was the goddess of victory. They had Bacchus, the, the god of drinking and partying and drunkenness, and, and plenty more where this comes, all of those come from. But all of these gods were, were actually a means to something else. You would, you would go to their temples, you would go and you would worship them, and you would make sacrifices to them because you believed in doing so that you could obtain something that you wanted, whether that was prosperity or power or sexual allure or whatever was most important to you. And, and I tell you those specifically because I, I think sometimes we tend to look down our noses at times at, at other societies, especially ancient societies. And then today, uh, we, we also look at societies in our world that have God set up like this in their cultures. And, and we tend to think that, oh, not us, though. We've evolved past that, right? We've progressed past those primitive practices. But, but really, we're all humans, we want the same things that they wanted. And, and we tend to worship things just like they did. We just don't tend to call them literal gods 
when we worship them. That's the only real difference, honestly, between us and them. We just, we just don't give our gods proper names. Let me try to prove it to you real quick. So I want us to do a thought experiment. Imagine with me in your mind uh, that a person from ancient, ancient Greece or ancient Rome uh, they transported themselves through time and history, and they dropped down right here, modern 21st century America. How, how do you think that they would perceive some of the things they see in, in our world? Let's say, for instance, hypothetically, they rolled up uh, last night to the Tennessee-Florida game. All right? They show up, and they look around, and they see people, and they're all dressed in the same colors, they have their faces and their bodies painted. They're, they're chanting songs together by the thousands in unison. They, they see millions and millions of dollars being redistributed through various avenues, somewhere, somewhere around 100,000 people, in fact, all chanting in unison. The winning team celebrates all together for an entire week. The losing team goes into a time of mourning with sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> and you can have some on the way out. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> they mourn for a whole week until Saturday rolls around again. Right? I think someone from those ancient societies would witness that and go, you guys worship Nike too. Wow. <laughs> and we'd be like, no, 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 no. I, sorry, we're way more enlightened than that. We would never. We've made so much progress. And they'd be like, what's that swoosh mark on all their shirts? And you'd be like, this is a different Nike. That's not the same. Couldn't possibly be related. Uh, it's, not, it's not what you think. Um, they, they would see our society's obsession with constantly buying newer and better and shinier things. They would see shopping malls and, and targets and, and all of these things that are, that are specifically designed to look like shrines. They would see stuff set up with brilliant lights pointing at them. There would, there would be sounds everywhere trying to convince you this is what you need to be happy in life. They would, they would scroll through the endless maze that is Amazon. They would see how much stuff we buy and how annoyed and how furious we are when it takes longer than 48 hours to be in my hands. They, they would see millions of people in our society and tens, go into tens and tens of thousands of dollars of debt to buy things that on the whole they don't need. They would see all of that and they would go, oh my gosh, you guys worship Plutus too, the, the god of wealth and abundance. And we would go, no, 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 no. We've progressed so much further than that. We would never do something primitive like that right before we swipe our credit card again at the cash register, right? Or we don't even go through that many steps. We just tap our phones now. I can't be bothered to take my wallet out. I got too much stuff to buy. Uh, they, they may go down to the strip. They may go check out some of the bar, well, the ones that are still open with construction happening. But they would go down to, to the strip and, and they would see hundreds of thousands of people, men and women, every weekend pour in and out of rooms where they can be served drink after drink to try to get as, as drunk as possible. They'd see people spending so much time and money on alcohol and, and parties, and, and they would see the way that those people act and interact with each other once they have gotten as drunk as they possibly can, and they would be like, you guys worship, worship Bacchus here too. We did the same stuff. 
And we would go, no, 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 not us. No, not like that. Right before we stumble into another bar. Right? They would see our dating apps. They would, they would see where, where we spend hours and hours a day, some of us swiping one way or another, fervently hoping that we can find one person who is attractive enough and not too creepy to hook up with. <laughs> right? They would, they would look at that. They would find out the multi-billion dollar industry that, that the porn industry has become, that has millions of men and women trapped, some in slavery. They would see the amount of time that, that people in our culture spend accessing websites where they can specifically try to watch other people do sexual acts together. And they would see all of that and go, you guys found a, a much more efficient way to worship Aphrodite. Right? And we would go, no, 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 not, not her. That's not what this is. But my point is that if, if a person from an ancient culture could see the things that you and I give our money and our resources and our time and our attention to, they would not only conclude that we worship the same gods as they do, but that we've actually enhanced the worship. We, we have found ways to make our worship of these gods so much more efficient and so much more accessible. We just don't give them names. Right? And the truth of the matter is that you and I continue to believe, just like all human beings who have ever existed and who will ever exist, that other things who are not God have some kind of salvific power in our lives, or we hope that they do. We, we functionally believe through our actions and through our behavior that they can save us. They can save us from unhappiness. They can save us from boredom. They can save us from monotony. They can save us from loneliness. Whatever it is, maybe it can save me. And, and the problem is, just like the false gods of Egypt and Greece and Rome and, and every other society, these false gods can never actually do what we want them to do. They, they can't, but for most of us, when they don't deliver on what we thought they would deliver, we don't just stop trying to squeeze the life out of them. Typically, we try even harder. Right? We, we pivot to a different God in our lives in the hopes that maybe one of them will finally be successful. So, in effect, these false gods leave us enslaved. We become mastered by false gods that, that care nothing about us, and they, and, and they can never deliver anything that they promise. But we keep looking because we have an insatiable desire for something to satisfy us, anything at all. If your whole identity in your life is based on, on a spouse or a partner, you are going to be emotionally dependent Jealous and controlling. Your, your partner's shortcomings or your partner's failings or your partner's problems will always feel earth-shattering to you. They will feel constantly overwhelming for you. If you center your life on, on, and your whole identity on family and kids, this idea of, of a nuclear family, then you're going to live your whole life through your children until they eventually resent you because they just couldn't bear the crushing weight and exhausting expectations that you had for them. 
Base your identity solely on your work and your career, and you will be a hyper-driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person in any context outside of your job. You'll lose family. You will lose friends. You will lose community because they are all obstacles in the way of my goal. They are all things to be avoided on my path to success. They're holding me back. If you center your whole life on the idea of pleasure and gratification and comfort, you'll find yourself addicted to something. Whatever it happens to be that you use to escape the realities of life, it will run your life. Center your life on relationships and the approval of others, and you will constantly be overly hurt by criticism. You will feel like you are always losing friends. You'll fear confronting others all the time because you won't be able to be helpful to your friends when it really counts because you don't stir the pot because this is all I have. If you center your life even on some noble cause and your whole identity is in that thing, you will end up dividing the entire world into good and bad people. You will, you will demonize anyone who diverges from your cause. And ironically, that, that means that you will end up being totally controlled by your enemies. Completely controlled by your enemies because without them, you have no purpose. You have no one to hate. Center your life on, on just the idea of morality or religion as a concept, and you will, if you are living up to your own standards, if, you will become so unbearably prideful and self-righteous. You will become cruel towards anyone that you feel like doesn't measure up. And if you're not living up to your own standards, your guilt and shame will be devastating to you. It will be crippling to you. You will not be able to go through life. Do you, do you start to hear the problems with basing our lives on things that, that aren't God? They, they simply will not work. They will eat you alive. Nothing that is, has ever been created on this earth will bear up under the weight of providing a lasting identity and meaning. Nothing can stand up to that weight. So, so here is where I want to land all of this and bring this to, to a close this morning. I, I want to help all of us, hopefully, just have some practical ways that we can start to discern what some of these functional gods exist in our lives or what gods we might be trusting in right now, whether we're aware of it or not. I want us to be able to, to practically sort through our lives and discern some some. Areas that we are looking for purpose or meaning or identity or satisfaction away from God. And I've got just a few questions that, that I want you guys to, uh, I, if you want to write them down, if you want to take a picture of the screen once they're all up there, whatever you want to do, or get them afterwards online. Uh, I, I think these are really good questions for you to wrestle with this week, starting today. I think you should do it on your own, and I think you should probably bring them to to your community, bring them to life group, and, and also have other people walk through those with you. But here are the questions that I want all of us to consider. First, what do you most easily sacrifice for? What do you most easily sacrifice for? Remember, the way worship works is it demands sacrifice. 
whether that's money or time or energy or effort, whatever it is, maybe all of those things, what do you most naturally and easily see that you could obtain? And you're like, I'll give it all up for that. Any one of those things, I'll give it up. Chances are that at least gets you closer to discovering what, what gods you may serve. Uh, second, what does your mind most easily gravitate towards? When, when you're bored, you have nothing else to think about, where does your mind run? What consumes your thought life? What do you think most about? What do you worry most about? What do you obsess over most often? And third, what do you most want people to know about you? If, if you're in a social setting with new people, what is the thing that you try to float out there? What's the, what's the topic that you just hope comes up so that you can share your opinion, so that you can let your prowess know, known on, on that topic? What do you most want people to know about you? And I think there's plenty of other questions that we could go through, but I, I hope that with each of these questions, once you've answered them, that you can ask the question, why? Why, why do I readily sacrifice for that thing? Why does my mind so easily gravitate towards that topic? Why do I want, why, why do I have this need for people to know this thing about me? And I think if you can truly, honestly wrestle with those questions, I think that'll get you pretty close, honestly. And maybe, like I said, with the help of community, sometimes we can be blinded to the things in our own lives but it will help us move in the direction of discerning what our functional gods are. And so I would encourage you to spend time with those questions and asking the Holy Spirit to help, help cultivate an awareness in you to show you anywhere that you might be putting other gods before him. And, and then we can move on to asking God to actually be God for us. Because the good news, like I said, with, with every other God, every other source of meaning and purpose and identity they all come up short, but God does not. He is, as Jeremiah says, the fountain of living water. He is, he is the, the cistern or the well that will never run dry. He is the source of lasting meaning and purpose, identity, satisfaction, life, joy. He is the source of all of those things. He is the God who will not enslave you, but will rather set you free. He is the God who brought his people out of Egypt and can bring you and I out of every single trap of sin that we find ourselves in. He is capable of all of those things. And not only capable, that is his desire to be those things for you. His desire is to be for you what you look for in every other false God. And all that he asks of us is to take his word for it. That is the only thing that he asks is that we trust him. We trust that reality day by day and we align our lives with that reality that he tells us. That is why the first of the Ten Commandments is so helpful for us in framing everything else up that we're going to talk about in this series. And maybe as we listed out those questions, uh, the Spirit has already brought things to your mind. 
Maybe you walked in here and I started talking and you were like, ah, I hate that I showed up today. I know where this is going. Like, maybe that was you. And maybe you're like, no, I actually have none. I've been the best Christian I ever have ever met, honestly. Um, if you have started to think about those things instead of God, and, and if he has brought those things to your mind, let me tell you the first thing that you are going to want to do with that information um, I, I will invite you in just a second, we're, we're about to transition to a time of singing. And when we sing, I, I would invite you uh, as a follower of Jesus to, to come to the communion table that we have in the room. I, I want you to take the, the bread and the cup or the, or the juice. And as you do that, I want you to remember something. Maybe even speak this over yourself or take communion with other people and speak it over them as you speak it over yourself. I want you to remember that even though we constantly trade God for other things, God made a trade of his own. Right? The, the scriptures tell us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When, when we follow Jesus, when we look to Jesus' example and we, and we follow after him, we are reminded that no false God satisfies like Jesus does. No false gods can keep us from Jesus either. So, so we come to the tables, we, we lay down our broken cisterns, and, and we ask to just receive the, the fountain of living water that we are offered. So I would love to pray for us as we, as we respond.